Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Dennis Bingham. Mr. Bingham is a professor of English and the director of the Film Studies program at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. So I, I love your the, the article I, I read that you wrote up on, on Eyes Wide Shut and, and, and the level of performance in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is it's an avenue that we haven't really explored yet on the series the the kinds of performances that he pulls out of actors they they have a very distinctive quality to them and and you classify them as brechtian yes and actually i got the idea years ago when i was really a young film person in in master school do you know the article in Sight and Sound in 1981 by some person, it's got to be a pseudonym, um, named P.T. Twickerington um, about The Shining? And whoever this was writing under a pseudonym, sometimes I've even thought maybe it was Kubrick himself, um, mm. said that... He was talking about why The Shining, like most of Kubrick's films when they came out, got such poor reviews, and why his films are so baffling to people on first viewing, and or a, a lot of people, unless you're on, unless you've gotten on Kubrick's wavelength, then obviously in all of the intervening years, and especially since his death. Um, many people have gotten on his wavelength, but this author made the point that uh, Kubrick's style is a combination of Brecht, who wants to distance you from the form, wants the performances to be to be bigger, and in mm-hmm. fact, Jack Nicholson on the set kept asking. Kubrick, aren't I being too big? And Kubrick assured him, no, Jack, you're not. Uh, He wants that larger than life, but also larger than the character, so that you become not that particular individualized character, but all characters like that. And so Bill Harford in Eyes Wide Shut becomes all yuppies. Jack Torrance in The Shining becomes all uh, frustrated husbands and and fathers and guys who feel that they're they've lost their their manhood some way or other and they want to get it back. Uh, Twickerington said that Kubrick is a combination of of Brecht and the distanciation and the epic acting and so on with Antonin Artaud and the theater of cruelty and the idea of theater as a, and by extension film, 
as a totalizing experience, as something that just engulfs you, again, engulfs you in the form. And as I learned more and as I studied Brecht, that idea of Kubrick not making Brechtian films. It would be wrong to say he does that. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard is probably the best example of a truly Brechtian filmmaker. And mm-hmm. and they're both Marxists and they're both very political artists. And uh, Godard basically set out to do in films what Brecht had done in theater. It would be wrong to say that Kubrick, who in one sense, of course, is a commercial filmmaker making big budget movies for uh, you know for the last 40 years of his life for one particular major studio, be wrong to say that he's anti-capitalism, but he's certainly critical of capitalism and he's mm-hmm. certainly critical of a lot of the ideologies, particularly masculinity and power in um in it so but but the acting is an element in particular that um Kubrick uh, retained of Brecht, and uh, a point that I always make is that if you look at the film a i that the Kubrick, of course, the Kubrick um, project that Spielberg picked up right. and made. Um, Spielberg tried to do it as Kubrick would have in so many respects, but he did not attempt the acting. So he didn't have actors do a hundred takes until all the spontaneity went out of their performance. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you look at that film, the first big difference between Kubrick and Spielberg right away between the obvious ones. Like of course, um Spielberg is gonna have some sentimentality that creeps in. Uh, but Beyond that, the first big difference is the acting. He just didn't go for Kubrick's style of acting at all. I think I, I find that that's true too, and and that was, and it didn't occur to me uh, until I read your piece uh, on it. Um, uh, but uh, because AI always struck me as such a fascinating movie, because it seems like a such an odd hybrid between Spielberg and Kubrick. Oh and yeah, you, you can feel him channeling Kubrick, uh, but but it's undeniably Spielberg. It, it's mm-hmm. a fascinating, exquisite movie for me. Um, but it, back back to the the style of performance that Kubrick uh-huh. pulled out. Uh, I mean, most people have grown accustomed to the kind of the, the Stanislavski method, the, right. the, the, the naturalism. And mm-hmm. Kubrick always made it clear to his actors that he doesn't care about naturalism. He, he wants it to be interesting. Right. Uh, um, what kind of – I mean, you hear about the, the Brechtian and you think broad, um, but can you achieve a certain s- subtlety through that style of acting that might not be possible in a more naturalistic style? Well, I think that's a, that's a really good question. Um, yes, I yes I think you can, but it's subtle about something other than what we usually think of characterization as being subtle about. We 
we expect that that Stanislavskian um, naturalistic acting that we're so used to will show us complexities in the characters and will show us the characters' inner life. Kubrick almost Kubrick is creating such types. Um, you know, uh, Frederick Raphael in his book about working with Kubrick on Eyes Wide Shut said, well, it didn't take me long to realize that Stanley wasn't interested in creating real characters. He was interested in creative, in creating types. And I'm sorry, but I, I read that probably before the film came out because I think it was published before the film came out. You can check me on that. It's been a while. Um, but I, I read that, and I, of course, I thought, uh, duh, <laughs> of course that, 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 of course that's what Kubrick does. Um, he. Um, he he does create types because he wants to get at people who think, and particularly men, men who think they're individuals, but they're not. They're acting out roles. Mm. And so that's what he wants to be subtle about. He wants to show you people who are robotic and you can you can look at almost any Kubrick film um, be it Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket or certainly the performance that he got from Ryan O'Neill in Barry yes. Lyndon which for a long time people just thought was bad acting as you you probably know the Harvard Lampoon gave that worst picture of the year and of its year, and Ryan O'Neill, worst worst actor. Uh, what Kubrick is interested in doing, particularly when he's working with a particular kind of male star, the the Kirk Douglas, the Ryan O'Neill, the Tom Cruise, the the star who plays heroes and who is an icon of masculinity he's interested in working that down to its barest point so that again tom cruise or not tom cruise i think tom cruise knew what he was doing but bill harford thinks he's such a special individual as we all do but he's acting out this role and the role that he's acting out is the hero who is just there for everybody. And so when Alice actually outright laughs at that, laughs at his role-playing, it knocks him off his pedestal, really knocks him for a loop, and he spends the rest of the film pursuing what and you know mm-hmm. i i think even what he's pursuing is ambiguous and so with kubrick i think it it moves from subtlety to, ambi- to ambiguity mm-hmm. and it's the it's on the level of ambiguity that i think you have to approach these performances which again usually look really broad and 
Um, I'm sure you'll ask me about this, but and yes, there there is a big difference between uh, Cruz's performance in Eyes Wide Shut and Kidman's, especially since it took Kubrick. I mean, I'm glad he did it, but it took him until his very last film to create a a, a real female character. There, there really aren't. Yeah. Uh, female characters there are women who show up in his films but that's really what they do is show up (laughs) well and I think Kidman is so exceptional in in Eyes Wide Shut but I also think that Shelley Duvall uh, turns in one of the great performances of that genre certainly in The Shining uh, uh, wrenching that, that performance yeah, I I agree. And again, even Stephen King, who I think I don't know if I don't know if he was under contract not to criticize, but he took the money to for the film rights, so I think he felt he couldn't be too critical. But interviews I read with him at the time, you could see his eyebrows raising in print. Shelley Shelley Duvall, this stick figure from who's always kind of an odd ball in the Altman films that that she had been in but again she's she is she's she would be olive oil in her next film Popeye and basically she's olive oil for Kubrick too mm-hmm. she's she's a cartoon of the uh screaming female in in a horror film and years before Carol Clover wrote about horror films and the final girl uh, she is the final girl but she's not like a final you know she's not Jamie Lee Curtis's final girl in Halloween she's she's a a cartoon and and yet there and this is going to sound strange. She's a cartoon, and yet there is something real about her. There is something interesting about her, and it's a dysfunctional marriage. And but the she doesn't know it's dysfunctional. She but she knows a lot of other things that Jack doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that's the interesting thing about that film and that character and that performance is that Wendy ends up knowing so much more than all these characters who have special abilities uh, ends up knowing really ends up getting picking up more of a, a the scent of that hotel than Halloran does than Danny, who has these special powers, but he's still a kid, and certainly then Jack, who once the hotel starts appealing to his male ego, mm-hmm. he he's gone. <laughs> right, right. You know, you you, meant, you mentioned Stephen King, and I mean Stephen King was very vocally uh, disappointed yeah, with, with the with the movie. But it's interesting because I, I in an interview I did for the series, it's the first time I've heard this. Uh, 
King wanted to make his 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 book as it was written into a miniseries, so he had to get Kubrick's approval to do that. Apparently, oh, and he Kubrick, did get Kubrick. Yeah. Oh, he had to yeah. get Kubrick's approval to do that. And, I didn't yes. know that. And Kubrick told him, "You can do it as long as you never say another word about my version of The Shining again." <laughs> and, so, and so that's why, at a certain point, he just doesn't. He just didn't stop talking about it. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, okay. and another example of that kind of master control that uh, Kubrick wielded. But when I think about his material, uh, the material that he chooses and how he chooses to approach the material, this probably ties in with his use of actors, mm-hmm. because I don't think uh, he chooses a, a project. Most of his projects were based on literary mm-hmm. properties, and he kind of empties them out and and uses the structure of those stories to filter in his own ideas. And when you think about performances in his films, Ryan O'Neill is a great example, you think of those Kubrick blanks, you know, (laughs) and he's using his actors to filter his his ideas through as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, and and it is, it it is interesting, the... um, what I haven't quite figured out are the few characters who are intelligent. Joker, what I mean is they have an intelligence that can see past all the machinery that everyone else is caught up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joker in Full Metal Jacket is a good example, and Alice in Eyes Wide Shut is Another example, these are characters who use their intelligence and thus they are more catalysts. You know, it's it's Eyes Wide Shut is still a movie about a man. Alice tells Bill her dream sh- shatters a lot of his illusions and then sends him out into the real world to chase down his fantasies. Uh, Joker is on really on, on all sides of the issue in Eyes Wide Shut, but once he has to make the decision to shoot the uh the Vietnam the North Vietnamese female sniper at the end, which, by the way, is an ending which I find everybody has a different interpretation of. I know few scenes that there are more interpretations, almost almost as many interpretations as there are viewers mm. of that film. But uh, it, in the later films, the intelligent character is uh, actually can do something. Although you're you're wondering, they're ambiguous. I mean, Joker joins in and sings the Mickey Mouse Club theme song with everybody else at the end, and you're not sure. Okay, has he joined the club or has he opted? Has he just opted out of the club because of what mm. we just saw? Um, Alice, that last scene is uh, in the toy store is wonderfully ambiguous, and there are probably a million different interpretations of that. But the earlier films, and I'm sure you know, it's the intelligent character, Dave in 2001, or Merkin Mothley in Doctor Strange Love, or 
the uh, Colonel Dax in Paths of Glory, they're ultimately ineffectual mm-hmm. for 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 all their intelligence, or maybe because of their intelligence, they're ineffectual. I see that too, uh, and I, in terms of the ambiguity, I see that a lot in in. Obviously, in Eyes Wide, the two titles that come to mind are, or three actually, are 2001 and The Shining and uh, Eyes Wide Shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the The Shining, it, it, it's such a puzzle that that movie to me. And talk about wildly different interpretations. That has been a fascinating movie to explore. But it's almost as if he takes the 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 meanings associated with with characters and scenes and moments and and he severs a thread like a connecting thread mm-hmm. so it so it leaves it leaves it very kind of open ended and i think people that resist kubrick resist the notion of bringing themselves to a movie you know you you you, you, yeah. you have to you have to bring your own kind of perspective and your own you know, way of thinking to 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 a kubrick movie you can't let it just happen to you yeah yeah, I I think that's right, and you've got to kind of let go of your own feelings about movies, which which is why um, I wrote an article in '94 that was in Mario Falsetto's um, mm-hmm. anthology perspectives on Stanley Kubrick. I know you've talked to him. Um, it was uh, it was a reception study of The Shining, and I wrote it in '94. In so it was reception just 14 years, but already it had been through. Already it was being recognized as a classic. You know the way uh, Sidney Pollack in that documentary Stanley Kubrick: A Life in Pictures says those are bad reviews when the films come out, and then 10 mm-hmm. years later they're all classics. Well, that was happening to The Shining at the time that I was writing that. Um, but um, the, the 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 thing about that film was at that time when Kubrick was still alive, uh, I was finding that Kubrick didn't have a niche anywhere. He wasn't the the auteurists the auteur critics never embraced him. It took Andrew Sarris a long time to come around to Kubrick. Uh, the academics, the semiotic critics, the feminist critics, he didn't fit into any of their pigeonholes. Kale, Kale never. Jumped. No, oh no. Yeah. Well, Kale, and, and but. Actually, it was easier to understand Kale's objection uh, because Kale expected movies to be fun and passionate mm-hmm. and emotional. That's why she loved De Palma. That's why early Scorsese grabbed right. her so much. And she found Kubrick cold and off-putting. And the interesting thing is... Her review of The Shining, at least she understands the film, which very few people did. I mean, she she understands the subtext and she understands what he's saying about America and the fact mm. that places on an Indian burial ground. So you read her review, she actually does get the film, which very few contemporary critics did, but she still disliked it because 
it was too deliberate. It had the stench her. of art to it. Yeah, and and you know yeah. she hated films that felt too pre-digested, and I think she felt that Kubrick had the spectator's response for the spectator, and all the spectator could have is that response. Obviously, that's wrong given all the the myriad ways people respond to mm-hmm. Kubrick films. But um, he, she saw his style as as cold and, yeah. and calculating. And well, let that, me. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, let me ask you about his. He, he worked with big stars mm-hmm. uh and he used them in a special way and in terms of eyes wide shut what strikes me about tom cruise in particular it, tom cruise is someone that uh you're used to seeing very active i mean mm. he's the guy he's the guy that saves the day the rah rah the all american boy and kubrick uses him as a kind of a passive lawyer oh that's interesting yeah i guess i guess he does uh it's interesting because Bill goes out. Alice is. Alice lives her sexuality with her husband and in her dream life, in her fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill being. And I really think this is a difference in gender. Uh, Bill being a man acts his sexuality out in the world because that's what men do. We go out and pursue what we want. And so he goes out and pursues what he wants, but I wonder if, and and a lot of this, of course, is from the uh, Arthur Schnitzler original, and that's something that a lot of people have said that perhaps um, it, it's been a long time since I've read the novella. Is the novella set in the 20s when he wrote it, or is it set earlier? I, I believe it is set in the 20s. I, I, I yeah. Don't quote me on that, but I but, think so. But e- even at that, there's a big difference between 1920s Vienna and late 1990s. Is it New York? Is it is it? England, mm-hmm. you know, that's another that's another question. <laughs> his his London uh, playing New York, uh, but uh, I'm not sure. When I watched the film again the other day, this all came back to me. I'm I'm not sure that those periods and those milieu translate so well. But nevertheless. In Kubrick, as in patriarchy, you know, men go out and go after what they want. And uh, Bill goes out, but once he's confronted with what he wants, he his actions are very contradictory. He's he's really eager to go to this place that yeah. Nick Nightingale tells him about, and. He's very aggressive, and he certainly he's very aggressive about things like getting the costume, and he's certainly aggressive with spending money. And I know somebody years ago figured up how much money, how much cash he's got on him that night, how much <laughs> money he he spends. It's a it's about seven fifty eight hundred 
dollars, uh, which is a lot of money to have on you in at, late at night in New York City. Even in 1999, we hadn't completely gone plastic yet as we have now. But as far as his being a passive lawyer, I think he's. I think he's he's active, but once he's confronted with things, like um, once he's confronted with Domino, who's a very attractive young prostitute, he backs off. And again, yeah. Kubrick isn't going to tell you why. Um, but certainly Cruz's persona, Cruz is, you know, there have... Certainly there are now, and I think there were at that time questions. I don't think they were founded in anything, but questions about his sexuality, about Mm -hmm. Cruz's sexuality. And so when those guys come up to him on the street and call him pansy and and whatnot, the first thought of a Kubrick maven is, oh, this is a clockwork orange Homage, because one thing I did see in Eyes Wide Shut the very first time I saw it was it, it was I'm sure Kubrick had no idea it was his last film, but there's a valedictory there's a valedictory about it that nearly every one of his films gets a, gets a mention in mm-hmm. Eyes Wide Shut, and that's actually unusual. Kubrick was never. He's self-reflexive, but he's not self-reflexive about his his own work. And it could have been something. This could have been the um, Nick Nightingale going to family in Washington State, for example, as the boxer character does in Killer's Kiss. Uh, just all of these homages to his earlier films. It could have been unconscious, as he said. Uh, the light of my life line mm. is mm. in The Shining uh, when Jack says that to Wendy. An interview asked him, was that your homage to Lolita? And Kubrick's line, if you believe what he says in interviews, which I don't always, uh, was, um, I didn't think of it, completely unconscious. So, of course, that could be unconscious, but the rest of us pick it up. Well, some some there there are places in Eyes Wide Shut where it's where it's pretty literal. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they're right down to there being a Full Metal Jacket in their DVD in their VHS case right. in their apartment. <laughs> right, and of course he does have Alex go into a record store in Clockwork Orange where there's yes. a 2001, 2001 album. Right. So he he we know he's capable of that kind of. Um, uh, what do you call it? It's not exactly self-reflexivity, but it's it's sort of a shout out to mm-hmm. to, to himself. Um, but yeah, I I I see Cruz in Eyes Wide Shut as the the thing that that narrative does, which so many of Cruz's other films do, is it's a kind of rite of passage. And it's a story of maturation. And up to that time, that was what most of his films had been, be it Top Gun or The Color of Money 
or The Firm or Jerry Maguire, uh, Rain Man, so many others. The character has to has to grow up basically, and has to put aside his his illusions about something, and and off, often that's the drive of the narrative. So mm-hmm. I um, I think in in that respect it is it is a Cruise film like his other you know it's a Cruise it's got a Cruise narrative underneath it like his other narrative. yeah it's some kind of comment on that. But do you find that that character is another one of Kubrick's kind of ineffectual males? I mean when you think of Barry Lyndon. Or when you think of uh, Nicholson, I mean, think of Nicholson in that character. He never he, he, he fails at writing. He never keeps up the hotel. He fails at killing his family. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, every challenge set before him, he fails at. Is, does that character, the Cruise plays Bill Hartford, does that fall in line with that or no? And you know, if I can just follow up on that for a minute, Nicholson had played parts like that in many of his these films uh, I know you just talked to Robert Town I was just teaching Chinatown and he that as a deconstruction of the hard-boiled detective story Nicholson is a detective who doesn't detect anything and is real and is wrong about about everything uh, Cuckoo's Nest similarly last detail similarly so Kubrick actually, and this is how he plays Hollywood's game in an ironic way, often when he works with these big stars, no one can say that he's not actually making a star vehicle because what he does with those stars is not that atypical, although it is on the surface uh, what they usually do. So I'm mm-hmm. sorry. What was your original question before? No, no I mean, that, that was it. I mean, do you find that in terms of the ineffectual male that Tom Cruise fits that profile? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And for some reason, the film, I think the film is a little less obvious about it. Um, and I know people have objected to the final scene with Ziegler because mm-hmm. Ziegler explains everything and tells him explicitly, tells Bill explicitly how in the dark he's been. Usually you don't get, uh, we're not told that directly how off base the character has been or basically that everything that the character thought was real has been a ruse, which I realized watching it the other day, film comes out in summer of 99, you know that big cycle of films in 99, 2000, 2001, in which the objective reality that you think you're in, you find out that it's actually not real and it's someone's Subjectivity. Think of the six right. sense. sense. Think yeah. of yeah. the others. Mulholland Drive, A Beautiful Mind, Donnie Darko. There was a whole cycle of films in those years, and The Shining comes out. Not The Shining. Eyes Wide Shut comes out at the very beginning of that cycle, 
And it is kind of that kind of narrative, too, except that typical for Kubrick, you've got super powerful powers that be who are in charge, and the little guy who thought that he understood everything and was master of his own destiny yeah. turns out to have been ineffectual the whole time. And it's his actual, after all, it's his uh, insecurity, it's his sexual inadequacy, and that frequent imagining of Alice with the naval officer that drives him out to do this. So these guys are always Jack Torrance, um, Barry Lyndon, you could say. They're always motivated. They're always set out into their their story by some feeling of inadequacy, which is just then born out in spades the more they yeah. do. Kubrick does this. It's kind of a repeating motif uh, throughout his career, but never so so obvious as it is and repetitive as it is in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. The kind of uh, the dialogue mm-hmm. where where there's the constant uh, back and forth, uh, what do you recommend? What do I recommend? I, I don't know if that's a particular line, but I'm trying to illustrate it's all the way through Eyes Wide Shot. I mean, it is constant. Did you notice that the last time you saw oh, it? Oh, yeah. And people have talked about that ever since it came out. And I never noticed that in his other films. Did you? I don't think it's a trait of his... There's just... A, there's, I, I think of the... the, the uh, you know some some of the moments in the Grady scene in The Shining. I mean, it's it's here and there, but never as yeah. prominent as it is in Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, and that's good that you bring up the Grady scene because in the Grady scene, Jack needs for what Grady is telling him to sink in, and mm-hmm. the incredible mise en scène that black and white bathroom. Um. Uh, that whole scene just I think it just seeps into your unconscious and yeah. just as Jack needs what Grady is telling him, he needs to have him keep repeating it to sink in and everything in that scene is repetitive just as the two figures are mirror literally mirror image mirror mm-hmm. images of each other looking at themselves and each other in in the mirror the um the repetition yeah the more you see eyes wide shut the more it's hard not to notice i have heard people say well if kubrick had lived those four months after he first showed the film to warner brothers and to Cruz and kidman he would have edited a lot of that um there's that possibility. I actually think it's uh, – I disagree with that, actually. Of course, there's no way of proving what Kubrick would have done to the film in the four months remaining or if he would have done anything. But um, I think that, again, you have this character who's rather clueless, but unlike – Barry Lyndon, say, who always seems clueless, or 
or Jack Torrance, who's who's a a, a buffoon, pretty much. Um, Bill Harford looks like he's on top of the world. He's mm-hmm. well dressed. He's a doctor. Everybody seems to like him, and of course, that's an odd thing too. Is that the more the film goes on, everybody sooner or later, males as well as females, are everybody's attracted to him, and the fact that it is Tom Cruise makes that easier to explain. You can say, well, of course, you know, at that time, Tom Cruise was such a sex symbol. Uh, well, of course, he's. He's Tom Cruise, who wouldn't be attracted to him. But uh, if you can forget it's Tom Cruise for a minute and start thinking about how odd that is, uh, and also that that repetition, it sets a rhythm, but I think it also shows you a character who doesn't understand and thinks that maybe if it's repeated again, he will understand it this time because he's such a rational person. Otherwise, again, he's a doctor. Uh, but it, it it is very strange. And I know it's something about the film that bothers people. I've always liked it. I think, it's, I think it sets a rhythm, and I think yeah. it can be explained. Well, and it gives it some. It gives it a certain hypnotic quality too. And mm-hmm. and you talk about that Grady scene and kind of finding yourself immersed in in that scene. Oh, yeah. And I think the same way of the very deliberately paced uh, confession of Nicole Kidman of of her fantasy with the sailor. I mean, yeah. that is as hypnotic as it as it as it gets. Oh, I know. And the thing that I love about Again, his direction of the actors, but maybe his direction of the actors shouldn't be seen as much different from his his manipulation of the mise-en-scene, his uh, cinematographer, and John Alcott, his cinematographer on many films, uh, said that Kubrick could have been a cinematographer himself with his photographer background, his photography background and if he had he would have dominated the cinematography field instead of becoming a a dominant director but um, yeah you're right that is as hypnotic as it comes but it's the reaction shots of crews where that are supposed to you know a reaction shot is supposed to show you a clear reaction mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. shots are so ambiguous you don't know what bill is thinking and then the following scene when he's in the taxi cab there's no better illustration of the kuleshoff test than those shots of crews in the back seat of the cab with a really you look at that expression it's it's blank and then Kubrick cuts to the um, naval officer making love to Alice, then back to Bill, then back to the naval officer and Alice, then back to Bill. It's the Kuleshoff test with us 
seeing, reading Bill's face entirely because of the other shot that we're cutting to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's such a fascinating movie. And, and yeah. when you talk about ambiguity as well, I mean, there is the ending, and I've heard it uh, – I've heard it kind of interpreted as his most hopeful, and then, and then on the other hand, uh, some people have claimed it's his most nihilistic. <laughs> so what, what other director do you get that with? I mean, that's just incredible. What, what is your take? Well, you know, I'll tell you. You go back to Dr. Strangelove, which I know you've, you've talked all about, uh, but – in Dr. Strangelove, you have men who are bent on the destruction of the world, only all they have on their mind is sex. And in um, thinking of their penis, can I say that on the radio? Uh, which they mix up with the phallus, you know, with phallic bombs and phallic missiles and phallic B-52s and and whatnot, they're confusing sex and death. They're confusing the life force mm. with with death and the most destructive kind of death. So if you keep that in mind, I think Kubrick realizes that men in particular confuse sex and death when the sex drive and the death drive ought to be you know, polar opposites. So, given that last line of Eyes Wide Shut, and the fact that he doesn't cut back to Bill, so we don't know what his reaction shot, what his reaction would be, although, again, not that Kubrick's reaction shots are necessarily helpful in letting <laughs> us know what the character's real, real reaction is. But the fact that he doesn't cut back to Bill's reaction and that line just hangs there, it can be threatening. Yeah. On the other hand, isn't that what most couples, or maybe not most couples, but isn't that the stereotypical thing that couples do after they've had a fight or a disagreement? They make love. They, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. you know, kiss and make up is the G-rated version of that. So that can be all that Alice is saying. And yet, the fact that people would read that as nihilistic might show how threatening female sexuality is. And that's what the film is. That's what the film is about, is Bill being threatened by Alice's sexuality and Jamie this is what I mean by the film perhaps going from Schnitzler's 1920s Vienna to the 90s is somewhat dated it says it and I think it's a it, it may be Kubrick showing finally his age and the fact that maybe he's been on the estate in Boreham Wood over in England a, a little too long. He's just found out about the female orgasm, you know, which isn't <laughs> hot, which, which isn't hot news in 1999. And uh, so uh, perhaps the the average heterosexual man out there is not 
so threatened by Alice saying the F word as Bill is supposed to be. Well, and it's it's it is a strange kind of dichotomy that he he focused so heavily on exploring various realms of masculinity. Uh, and yet he was surrounded by women in his life. I mean, he, his, his daughters and his wife and a long-time marriage. Uh, and by all accounts, it was a very warm, kind of comforting cocoon for him. Well, and don't you think in Eyes Wide Shut, he's finally made a movie about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's just, got his wife's paintings all over. And, of course, his wife's paintings had been in his films going back to Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. And they hardly mean the same thing there as they do in in, in Eyes Wide Shut. But, yeah, it, it's as if he finally made a film about his life with Christian and, and yeah. his daughters. And well, you look at it that way, it's very interesting. And and the other another avenue you can explore with Kubrick is just how his filmography at a certain point – it can all play like one continuous movie, um, and you know you think of the ending of 2001 or mm-hmm. Strange Love, the destruction of the world, the opening of his next movie, the the world, you know, the dawn of man, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then it closes with the the wide eyes of the star child, and his next movie opens up with the wide eyes of Alex, and mm-hmm. on and on and on. And do you do you feel that 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 last line, that last scene of Ice Wide Shut is a fitting bookend? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, the point, certainly the point about his whole career, his whole body work being one film, that of course goes back to Jean Renoir's line that a man spends his life making one film and mm-hmm. that that line was often cited as one of the impetus for impetuses, if that's a word, for for auteurism. So Kubrick is finally, of course, an auteur after all. And yeah, it it is one film. And so yeah, to the extent that his films are often about. Death, they're often about death and sex at once, and the tendency to confuse the two, the tendency of of humanity and men, the male half of humanity in particular, to confuse the sex drive and the death drive. I, I think it's... A fitting book, and that if you start thinking about it in terms of other Kubrick endings, Mind Fuhrer, I Can Walk in, in Doctor Strange Love, The Star Child, The Frozen Jack Torrance that mm-hmm. people compared to the Lincoln, looking like the Lincoln Memorial, um, it is a it it's monumental as those are but in a quieter way and I think maybe in a feminine way. I I really do think that Kubrick in Eyes Wide Shut is attempting to make a 
fem maybe not a feminine film, but to explore femininity. And he really mm -hmm. had never done that before. 